This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Equity Bates. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I am pumped for this episode. Uh, a lot of what we talk about here on Equity Mates are some of the big mega trends that will define our lives and uh, create great investing opportunities. And there's probably no bigger mega trend and no bigger tailwind than the changing demographics of this world. Yes. And the fund manager that we've got on the show to talk to us today is investing on the basis of, of demographics. That's it. We've got a, an expert here to help us unpack it all. It's our pleasure to welcome Alex Gold to the studio. Alex, welcome. Good evening to you guys. Good morning from here. It's good to be with you. So Alex is a portfolio manager of the Fidelity Global Demographics Fund and uh, it's available on the ASX. The stock ticker is FDEM. Uh, and we're really going to be uh, unpacking what the fund does, uh, some examples of the big tailwinds that Alex was, to- uh, Alec was talking about, and uh, then have a chat at the end about some of the top holdings in the company and how it relates to uh, the demographics thematic. So we appreciate the uh, support from Fidelity. This episode is sponsored by Fidelity. Uh, So let's get stuck in, Ren. Uh, A bit of an intro to the fund. Alex, demographics. What does this mean and why do demographics create a good investable opportunity? Yeah, so you touched upon a good point earlier when you talked about the importance of megatrends, which I think a lot of people are aware of from a top-down perspective. But when we think about demographics, it's really about taking a long-term view behind several of these mega trends, which are structural drivers in the world, and investing behind them. And so we've identified three key mega trends, which we think are particularly important over the next couple of decades, really, even even longer. Um, The first of which is what we classify as longer lives. So this is the aging of the population as people get older. And there are some great stats about the proportion of the population that will be over the age of 65 in 2050 versus now, for example. And we can dive further into that later if, if that's useful. The second area is better lives, which is really just the expansion of the middle class. You know, you guys in Australia will know that, you know, more than us, I would have thought with the, um, you know, your proximity to China and the fact that, you know, there's this huge bolus of Chinese um, cities and citizens who are getting wealthier by the day and, you know, really going through that kind of industrialization and consumerism process that we've been through over the last hundred years already. So that's a great opportunity. And then the final one is is really more lives, so population growth. And, you know, the world is continuing to grow from the current levels, and we've got good predictability in terms of birth rates, where that will be in the next couple of years, in the next couple of decades even. And that creates opportunities as the population grows, but also challenges, you know, from a sustainability perspective and resource perspective. So, you know, those are really the the key things that we're looking at, you know, longer lives, more lives, and, um, and better lives is how we define it. So then, Alex, of all of the possible demographic trends that you could sit down and try and make investment case for, why are those three, aging population, growth of the middle class and overall population growth, why are those the ones that you've chosen and what makes them uh, investable? 
It's a good question. So we think they're just so pervasive. They're, they're in everything. So, you know, obviously other mega trends like, you know, water or waste or sustainability are also very important, but they're completely interlinked to those trends which we've identified. So population growth puts pressure on resources, means it's more important to conserve water, to manage waste, you know, accordingly, and from a sustainability perspective, make better use of resources. You know, the aging of the population is completely interlinked to healthcare. And, you know, the fact that, you know, our healthcare needs are increasing and we need innovation around that. And there's lots of exciting verticals within that. And then there's also a further one, which is, the fact that the dependency ratio from an aging population means that you have less people working than those who are retired over time. And that's the trend which we're going on, which increases the importance of technology and automation. So we think these are three of the kind of the big, I guess, um, structural megatrends. And then there are lots of little verticals within those. So Alex, uh, more lives Better lives, longer lives. It uh, it paints a it paints a pretty good uh, picture for our future. What are the numbers telling us? What does uh, you know if these demographic trends hold and we project forward, you know, a decade, multiple decades? What does the world look like, and what do our lives look like in the years to come? There's some great stats around this, which most people are probably familiar with, but still, you know, surprising when you sort of, um, you know, look out 20, 30 years. So in terms of the aging of the population, you know, there's in 2015, for example, there were 900 million people globally over the age of 60. By 2030, we'll have 1.4 billion people over the age of 60. Wow. And by 2050, we'll have 2 billion. So we're going to go from 900 million in 2015 to 2 billion people over the age of of 60 by 2050. Wow. So you can just imagine what that means in terms of healthcare needs, spending habits, you know, a huge variety of things. The second area, you know, which we spoke about, you know, better lives, you know, the rise of the middle class, various definitions in terms of pay to define middle class. But we're basically going to go from 3 billion people globally being in the middle class in 2015, which is about 50% of the global population to eight and a half billion people will be defined as middle class. So five, five billion of the eight and a half. So five billion people will be middle class by 2030. So we're going to go from three billion to five billion. Again, that's, you know, a huge increase in people's spending and purchasing power. And in terms of population growth, you know, we're just going to, we're going to go from seven billion, you know, also currently to, you know, 9.7 billion by 2050. And these aren't kind of, you know, trying to forecast Tesla's production numbers next quarter or next year. These are like fairly well understood, you know, you know, World Health Organization or whatever numbers. They're like, they're pretty indisputable. Mm. You know, when you look at it from that lens and then you think, what are the opportunities within those? We think it's really powerful. So then if demographics uh, one will likely be the biggest drivers of earnings growth in, in years to come and two are highly predictable... Why isn't this opportunity already priced into, I guess, the investment opportunities? You know, it boils down to a lot of, you know, what investing is in its, its very essence. So, you know, for me, the critical reason why it's not priced in is duration. I think when people think about investing and putting a portfolio together, there are, there are various approaches and investment philosophies in terms of how you can do it. But, you know, one approach is to obviously buy an ETF, which allocates capital on the, you know, on the basis of the market capitalization, the size of a company. 
but takes no view on the underlying quality or cyclicality or long-term demand of those businesses. The other, the other way is obviously active investing, which is what we're focused on at Fidelity. And here, and what I do is you construct a portfolio of companies which we think are good quality, operating good end markets, have good management, allocate capital well in terms of how they spend it, whether it's on M&A or, um, or new capital equipment to build their businesses. And we think that by doing fund management actively and by deciding where we're going to invest our capital, we can um, identify companies where the duration of the earnings growth and the revenue growth and the opportunity is often underestimated by the market. And so, so that, you know, as you said, they're well identified, the drivers, but, you know, often if you take a longer term view, you will see through some of the shorter term fluctuations in the market, which we think is an opportunity. When we were sort of talking about this fund uh, here at the office at Equity Mates, um, one, one thing that really struck us was that while the demographic changes may be predictable, and you know you spoke about some of some of the numbers before, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the companies that are going to win as a result of these demographic changes are highly predictable. So, what characteristics are you looking for in companies? that will become eventual winners in markets and really be the ones that ride these demographic trends, uh, especially when maybe these markets aren't even fully developed yet. You're certainly right. It's not it's not predictable finding <laughs> the companies that will, will be leveraged to this trend. So, I mean, so obviously we're fortunate in terms of our resources with you know 240 analysts globally, over I think 16,000 company meetings when we sort of wow. meet the CEOs and CFOs of all these companies in the last year. And so, you know, we have a great, you know, resource to try and, you know, understand which companies may be the winners. The key characteristics that we look for in, in the fund is to identify companies which operate in attractive end markets within these mega trends. Some end markets cyclical summon markets are kind of structurally growing much faster than others. We like companies with pricing power, you know, particularly at this point, you know, with you know inflation being a, a concern. But you know, pricing power is always important because it what it means is a company that has an ability to put up prices year after year clearly has some form of competitive advantage or remote, as you know, Warren Buffett and people would term it, which means that it's a you know structurally a good business. So we look for good businesses with pricing power, oligopolistic or you know well structured end markets. You know as importantly, we look at who is operating those businesses. What is the management team like in terms of their track record? What are their priorities and how do they allocate capital? That's you know really important. How do they spend your you know as a as a owner of a share you own part of that company that's how we look at it you're not just trading it you own part of that business so how do the people running that business manage the cash and what do they do with it so alex one of the big opportunities in demographic change is in emerging markets however 70 percent of the fund is sitting in u.s french and japanese equities so how, how do you think about or can explain the geographic distribution of the fund so you're right, you know, a lot of the companies we own are in those developed areas. And 
the reason for that is because a lot of them are very well established in terms of you know their their businesses and their brands and the products they have but a lot of their sales will be in the emerging markets like china so the figures you've quoted are where the companies are domiciled you know where they're listed on the stock market but if we look at um their revenue exposure for example you know 32 percent of the revenue exposure of the companies we own is in emerging markets and so, and the U.S. is, you know, 50, as you said, over 50% is domiciled in the U.S., but actually only 37% of the revenues are in the U.S. And then we've got, there are lots of examples, but whether it's companies like LVMH, where 35% of their sales are in China, or whether it's Nike, where, you know, again, about 35% of Nike's sales are in China. You know, a lot of the companies we own are very geared or driven Um, in terms of their growth rates by emerging markets. I think that's a really important thing to stress for uh, a lot of, you know, beginner investors that where where a company's revenue comes from uh, will matter a lot more than where it's listed. You know, in Australia, we're pretty inward looking. We we export some minerals, but... uh, we don't do we don't do a lot outside of that in in the UK obviously like uh, revenue comes from a lot more diverse sources but um yeah it's a good reminder that just looking at where these companies are listed doesn't tell the whole story uh, but Alex would would love to um get a little bit more specific and talk about some of these demographic trends uh, and I guess really unpack what the trend is what the numbers are telling us and then uh where the investment opportunities are emerging from this trend. So maybe if if you pick one and uh, we'll start there and then maybe we'll go on to a second. Yeah, if, if you talk us through sort of that top-down process that you go through of identifying the trend, figuring out what the trend is telling us about the world and what the world will look like, but then actually figuring out where the investment opportunities will lie at the end of that. Sure. So, you know, it's a good example is um – of a trend within a mega trend is healthcare. So when we talk about the aging of the population, which we touched upon at the beginning, you know, what that means as we have, you know, huge proportion of the population globally turning over 60, is that means that there is an increased healthcare need. And so there are two ways to kind of think about this. One is, okay, healthcare spending is going to increase, but the other is how can the healthcare system sustainably manage this huge you know, increase in in demand. And so the various statistics, you know, from in the US, we've got, you know, they already spend 17, 18% of their GDP on healthcare. Um, China spends three to five percent, so very low. And the average in sort of the OECD is, you know, eight, nine percent. But the US already, you know, the US is the primary area which spends 17, 18%. And so as the US, which also has the baby boomers and has a huge increase in their over 60s, increases um, in terms of their healthcare need, what that means is healthcare spending will continue to increase, but it can't continue indefinitely when it's at that level. So what you need is companies with innovative products that do two things. One is to improve the health outcomes of their patients. You know, that's obviously rule number one. Um, And, uh, you know, there are great companies in Australia like CSL, for example, that is a world-class company globally that has some products that help their patients. Um, But the other key area, aside from helping patient outcomes, is to do it in a way that saves the healthcare system money. So this can be things like minimally invasive surgery or health vertically integrated healthcare systems or diabetes patches or robotic surgery, all of which aim to basically reduce complications, keep people out of hospital 
which is very expensive by the time you get there and then save money to the healthcare system. So the companies that develop products that are able to both help patients get a better outcome, but also use innovation to help do it in a more cost-effective, timely, efficient manner is really where the opportunity is. So if healthcare is one example of a, of a demographic trend, is there another that you would be able to share? Yeah, so another really interesting one is is automation. And this is linked to the facts, you know, of population growth and the fact that we have an aging population. And as I touched upon earlier, what that means is we've got a dependency ratio, which is rising. So this is the proportion of non-workers, the so people that, that, that have retired to the working population. And we've already seen this in Japan, which has already gone through this kind of demographic structural shift, you know, a few years you are a few decades before other areas. And what it means is over the last you know, 20 to 30 years, not just in Japan, but many areas of the world, we've seen lower productivity in terms of people's output. And how do we counteract that? And that's only going to get worse as the population grows and as people get older. So the best way to counteract that is automation. And so in Japan, for example, there are a number of world-class companies that do factory automation, which is about ensuring that when you do manufacturing, you use robots that basically help do it more efficiently. And it's not the sort of stuff of science fiction has kind of been good, you know, been around for like decades, but as it evolves and it becomes better and better, you can augment the kind of the high value work that humans can do with machines that can help automate some of the more, um, you know, manufactured processes. And so there are lots of companies, whether it's companies focused on manufacturing per se, or whether it's focused on agricultural productivity to try and improve and enhance yields and use data analytics to in those sort of areas, you know, automation is a really important area of focus to, again, offset some of these, you know, top down thematics, which are definitely going to happen. Yeah, I imagine when you're thinking about the uh, the aging demographic trend, looking at Japan is just a a real like you know look through to the future. Some of some of the stats out of there are just mind blowing. The one that always gets me is um, it was probably a years ago now, but more adult diapers were sold in Japan than children's diapers, <laughs> which I guess I is that one. <laughs> yeah, which I guess is probably going to happen in a lot of the Western world in the coming decades. Well, isn't China now really encouraging their population to start? having more and more kids because they're aging yeah. too quickly. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah. But on the other hand, like 60% of India is like under 30 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, if we know, if we say that Alex just goes incredibly long on adult diaper manufacturers, <laughs> we'll know yeah. we've done something to help. <laughs> so, Alex, before we uh, – have a chat about some of the specific companies in in your top holdings. We're just going to take a, a quick break to hear from our sponsors. So, uh, let's get specific. The Equity Mates community uh, love talking specific stocks, and we've had a look at the fund's top holdings, and we're really surprised to find that the four biggest holdings are Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, and Alphabet. So what is the demographic driver for these sort of four big tech companies? It's important to address it because you're right, you probably wouldn't think, oh, I'm buying a demographic fund, that's what I'm going to own. And it's something that we think about a lot, you know, internally. And, you know, when we're as part of our investment process, when we're allocating capital and deciding which companies to own, we have to have a demographic rationale for, for every business. And we have to 
identify which of those thematics that we've talked about earlier they are aligned to. And if we can't do that, we can't own it. And there have been examples where we haven't owned companies on that basis. So, so I'll quickly run through them. So, so Microsoft, the key driver actually of that business is their cloud, their hyperscale cloud business. And what's interesting is, you know, that's the number we met we had a meeting with them two days ago but the numbers are mind-blowing because they've just reported but it's a 44 billion dollar business from nothing five years ago the the, the cloud business i'm talking about is growing at 40 percent per annum it's going to be 100 billion dollars as people transition their workloads from on-premise into the cloud and what that means is microsoft is growing so high teams you know, even though it's absolutely huge business. And so why is the cloud demographic? Well, you know, Jeff Bezos in, in his letter for Amazon, because Amazon is the second biggest, is the biggest player in, in hyperscale cloud, you know, highlighted that actually not only do you have 30% greater efficiency in terms of by being on the cloud um, as your, for your business, but most importantly, it's 90% less energy intensive because you have these huge hyper, hyperscale cloud infrastructure Structures, which is what Microsoft and Amazon own, rather than a little data center in every corporate, you know, company around London or New York or whatever. And so, really, that energy efficiency of being in a much bigger infrastructure is why we think Microsoft is aligned to demographics. So, so that's the key reason for Microsoft. And it's the same. It's the same for Amazon. You know, everyone thinks of Amazon as the platform where, well, especially. You know, during COVID, where you know you bought everything from, but actually the retail business is very low margin, naught to two percent margin, and actually Amazon's entire profit effectively is driven by AWS, which is Amazon Web Services. That's well, that's fifty five percent of their earnings. That's the thirty percent margin business, and that is the key for Amazon. Is this hyperscale cloud business? which again is about better using resources, more energy efficient, which is, you know, given population growth, et cetera, et cetera, is very important. So those are the reasons for Microsoft and Amazon. You know, Apple, when we look at it, a third of group sales are in um, are in China and Asia Pacific. So, you know, as people, you know, that really is a, a, two things. That's about population growth in, in the emerging markets, but also it's about, you know, the middle class spending, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's aspirational because China has lots of, you know, very good businesses that sell mobile phones as well. But the iPhone is something that, you know, it grew 70%. iPhone sales grew 70% in China last year to, you know, $69 billion. So it's not just the US and, and Europe that buys a lot of iPhones. And then finally, Google. You know, Google's an interesting one because, a stat that struck me when I spoke to our analysts you know, a couple of weeks ago on this is that it's an advertising platform, you know, search platform, which we know, but you know, 70%, so 70% of Google's revenues are actually from small businesses. And so when we think about what does that mean, you know, our, our analysts kind of like to use an analogy, which I think is quite powerful, is that effectively digital advertising is the new rent. You, you know, lots of companies are digital only now. They're not going into bricks and mortar, they're just having an online presence and they're advertising and reaching a huge, hugely expanded audience through digital advertising on Google. And that kind of 70% of small businesses is like an enabler of, you know, of reach and again, you know, efficiency really, because you're not having to buy a brick and mortar shop, you do it online. So those are, that's the rationale for those big four. Not all of their businesses are 100% demographics but large portions are. 
And then, you know, in the rest of the fund, we analyze say exactly which proportion is demographically driven and which isn't. These companies are just global giants and, you know, as global population grows uh, and gets wealthier and, you know, the middle class expands and I guess people live longer and consume longer, they're going to just have bigger populations to sell to. One uh, question that's just come to mind, you know, we we talk in general strokes globally about our lives getting longer, better, and there being more of us. Is there anywhere where you see, like, is there any parts of the world where those demographic trends aren't holding, like where, where they're really bucking the trend and lives are getting shorter or the middle class is shrinking or uh, populations are just shrinking generally? I think in certain parts of Europe, we've certainly got the populations relatively stagnant. You still have the aging of that population. But I guess I think the beauty of the fact that we look globally is that some areas have lower growth, but then other, but France, for example, has no, Europe, for example, has no population growth, but it has the aging population element, Mm. which, you know, almost, almost by definition, if you're static and your population ages, you're one of the mega trends is going to impact you. So um, the areas of fastest growing population growth are in Africa, where there are fewer investment opportunities directly in that region. Each of the other themes we've talked about, to be honest, are pretty pervasive, you know, throughout the world. The whole Africa uh, opportunity could be a whole other podcast because it is just a it's a yeah. fa- fascinating world out there, and there's some interesting companies. But let's focus on the companies that you are investing in. Outside of the four big tech companies that we we touched on before, would love to I guess unpack maybe one or two companies that you're particularly excited about in your fund. Um, and for each of the companies, would love to unpack what it does and what what's the investment thesis. Uh, how does it tie to a demo? demographic trend and then you know a little bit about what you think the future looks like as these demographic trends play out sure so i guess there are two companies which i think are well there are lots but two which are quite interesting so the first which i'll talk about is lvmh so lvmh you know is the sort of luxury goods company that has a huge amount of you know high quality brands and assets ranging from champagne and wine perfume fashion leather watches and jewelry with the likes of louis vuitton christian dior fendi and they recently bought tiffany you know diamonds as well what we like about that is you know clearly that is a play on emerging you know middle class and spending you know it's, it's quite fascinating you know they again had results recently and you know they their sales were up you know, 36% versus 2020. They were up 14% versus over two years versus 2019. So we've had a pandemic. Everyone thinks of, you know, recession and you. the last thing you're going to do is go and buy a handbag. But actually... <laughs> their sales are 14% higher now than they were in 2019. And the reason for that is because, I guess, A, we had stimulus checks in in the US. So some people would have spent their stimulus checks, not just trading on on Reddit, but also, um, you know, buying buying products. But also um, in China, there's a really interesting element. So, you know, 35% of sales are sort of Asia x Japan. And a statistic which the company spoke about recently is that, in China, once you get to $30,000 of annual income, you will spend the same amount on luxury goods as in the UK or America or Australia when you earn $100,000. So the propensity to spend as a proportion of your disposable income is so much higher in somewhere like China than other parts of the developed world, which is fascinating. That is fascinating. Is that is that because cost of living is a lot lower as well yeah. or is it just 
just different spending habits. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, yeah, I think part of it must be cost of living. They would probably pay a much lower rent, for example. So part of it would be spending um, being lower. But I think also, you know, I read history at university, actually, and I think a lot of it would be conspicuous consumption. You know, this is something which we went through, you know, 200 years ago in the UK, where people wanted to spend money to show that they had reached a certain wealth status. And I think China is going through that journey now and is quite far through it in many respects. And so, you know, spending your money on conspicuous consumption and luxury goods is is something which is a higher priority, perhaps, than other areas of the world. China is, well, it's, you know, we, we spoke about its demographic challenges, but it's, you know, the, the story of its middle class is just phenomenal. Well, it's like 600 million people they've brought out of poverty in the last decade or something like that. Um, and, you know, I expect, or I assume you expect a lot of Southeast Asia to just massively increase their middle class and their purchasing power in the coming decades. When you project forward a decade or two, like what, what do you think LVMH and, you know, all their luxury brands, like what, what does the business look like? Yeah, so, you know, the growth rates which we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, the 14% over two years, it's still below what they've historically achieved. And, you know, when we look forward, we quite easily get to, you know, high single digits of nine to 12%, um, you know, top line growth. And then a lot of these businesses then have, um, you know, a bit of margin expansion opportunity. And then, you know, importantly, they then are continuing to build out their, their, their brand of, um, of brands, you know, they, you know, bought Tiffany for, I think, $14 billion or so, which was one year's cash flow. So, you know, next year when they earn another $14 billion, they can buy another, they're not going to buy another Tiffany, but, you know, they have the ability to keep spending to build out this portfolio of world-class brands, which, you know, that creates a moat, you know, China or even in Europe or the US, you can't just, you know, build a a portfolio of assets like that overnight. That's, you know, a defensible moat, which, you know, gives them pricing power and a continued opportunity to take advantage of that growth opportunity. 14 billion free cash flow. That's, uh, that's pretty nice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Alex, we've probably got time for one more stock that is uh, particularly interesting you outside of those, uh, the four big tech. So again, sort of what does the company do and the investment thesis behind it? And then how does the future look for, for this company when, uh, you're thinking about the demographic trend? Sure. So another one is one that people may have heard less about called Thermo Fisher Scientific in the US. And so Thermo Fisher is a, a leading world-class healthcare company. And obviously this plays into the aging population and increased healthcare need thematic. And so what they do is they are vertically integrated in the fact that they sell research equipment, you know, analytical machines and equipment to researchers at biopharma, you know, pharmaceutical and biotech companies to conduct their research. And they sell all the consumables to let the scientists and researchers do their research. That's called like the life sciences and analytics. And then they also um, will help manufacture drugs for their biotech and pharmaceutical clients, because actually a large part of drug manufacturing is outsourced. And the, you know, the very large pharma companies do some in-house, but they also outsource. But you know, some of these very small biotech companies where there's been a lot of funding into biotech in the last 
five years. They develop their own drug, but they do not manufacture it. They outsource it to a company like Thermo Fisher. And um, and then the other area that they do is they help run the clinical trials for biotech and pharma companies. So they're kind of the infrastructure behind a lot of you know drug development. And so what's interesting about it, I think, is that rather than taking a, a binary bet on whether an Alzheimer's drug or an oncology drug is going to work, these guys are exposed to to all different modalities and therapeutic areas. And the analogy, which I think is is apt, is you know, in a, in a gold rush, you want to actually own the picks and shovels manufacturers, mm. not the gold mine. You want to, well, you don't want to look for gold mine. You want the picks and shovels who sell to everyone. And this is what these guys do. And you know, it's a business that had a very resilient and successful period in the last two years during COVID because they also do diagnostics. And so all the diagnostic testing, all the COVID tests, which we've all had, the PCR tests, you know, they um, they help sell those and the equipment to run those tests on. And so they actually, in, in 2021, they earned about $8 billion in revenues from, you know, helping do those COVID tests, um, which again, you know, if we think about healthcare, diagnostics and COVID testing is is really important because that stops people getting ill and getting to hospitals if you identify it sooner and stops it being spread. So it's a really powerful thing. And uh, and so when we look at the longer term prospects for Thermo Fisher in terms of you know those areas in which they operate, they had a capital markets day last year where. You know, they articulated that they hope to grow their top line, their sales by seven to nine percent per annum. They want to do fifty to seventy-five um, basis points, so it's of half a percentage point of margin expansion. And then they, you know, generate a lot of free cash flow. You know, seven, not as so much as LVMH, but seven to eight billion dollars a year. And their strategy, because it's a very fragmented end market, you know, each of those markets in which they operate, there are no big competitors. It's you know consolidating lots of small ones. Their strategy is to use that free cash flow for MA and to continue to build out the suite of services they can offer their pharmaceutical and biotech clients. And it's been very successful. Um, if we look back over the last decade, they've you know grown their top line by seven to eight percent per annum. They've um, grown their free cash flow by 19% per annum over the last decade, partly aided by the COVID tailwind of testing, but in the last few years. But going forward, you know, we see a picture of of them achieving that seven to nine percent top line growth and 14 to 15 percent earnings growth, which we think is is very attractive. Yeah. It's uh it's not a company I've heard of, but uh it's I just had a look, two hundred and forty billion dollars market cap, yeah. ten bagged in the last ten years. Wow. It's the thing I love about investing. There's always another company that you haven't heard of. There's always a 10-bagger. There's always <laughs> another one out there. <laughs> um, yeah, so two two fascinating companies, um, and I'm sure there's plenty more. If uh, if people want to have a look at some of the other companies in the fund, uh, they can jump on the Fidelity website, uh, look at the Global Demographics Fund. Um, the top holdings are there. Alex, we have almost reached the end of our time. We do like to finish with the same final three questions. Uh, but before we do, um, as well as the Fidelity website, if people want to learn more about uh, yourself and um, you know the fund and also maybe more generally about this uh, demograph- these demographic trends and how they can invest in them, uh, is there anywhere in particular they should be going? 
Well, I no, I think um, I think there are quite a lot of books written about the key trends. But you know, to be honest, they'll probably tell you you know some of the same statistics and mega trends which I've spoken about. I think yeah, there's material on our website which we're you know we'll see more than happy to um, to delve through it in more detail. Great. Well, uh, we'll get into the final three questions that we like to end every interview with. Uh, and the first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? Um, it's a good, good question. I've got, you know, I've got three young kids all under the age of four and a half. And my, uh, my wife has given me a Kindle so that I can, you know, actually read more rather than just read the sport or whatever on my phone. And, um, What's wrong with so sport? There are, <laughs> there are lots of, uh, so I've been, I've, yeah, despite having three young kids, I've actually been reading quite a lot. But, uh, if I think of one of the most formative books actually is, is one called, mindset i don't know if you guys have heard that is by carol dweck so it's it's called mindset she's basically um a psychologist at stanford in the u.s it's probably been the most influential book on my life and it's about highlighting the difference between having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset and a growth mindset essentially is about you know, indicating that intelligence is something that could be developed and improved. It's about encouraging learning rather than thinking it's a preordained, you know, attribute. And so it's just interesting because it encourages you, you know, to embrace challenges. You praise effort and process, not outcomes, and you learn from mistakes. So mistakes and failures are actually just seen as learning opportunities nothing else they're not seen as a sign that you can't do something all the whole book is grounded in you know academic studies which highlight the implications of adopting a growth mindset over a fixed mindset that's you know one which i think is fascinating it's had a big impact on as an investor is really important but also you know the way you raise your children a lot of her studies are about how you raise your children and about praising effort, not outcome. So that's that's one which I'd highly recommend. So Mindset by Carol Dweck. And actually the, the CEO of Microsoft is says that's the most influential book he's ever read. And yeah. it, it's been quite influential in his turnaround of Microsoft. Um, wow. So that's one, yeah. Well, you're in good company there with the CEO of Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> so the second question that we like to ask Forget valuation or uh, anything today, just purely based on what the company does and fundamentals. What's the best company you've ever come across? Uh, yeah, I have to say it is actually Microsoft. Uh, it genuinely, when you, when you, and it seems ridiculous, I would even say that now given the size of the company. But when we look at the growth of Microsoft, given you know the size the size of the company, it is still significant. You know they just printed nineteen percent you know organic growth in the last year. Um, they have very high margins, and over the next couple of years, they are going to get to you know one hundred billion of free cash flow. And if you think, okay, that's that's interesting, but how much capital do they have? Have they had? You know, what's their manufacturing or their, you know, the technology? What have they spent to generate a hundred billion? Their capital is is less than a hundred billion. So you know, the returns of every year they can generate more than their capital base. I mean, it's quite phenomenal in terms of the growth rate. And then it's also completely. Um, effectively not bulletproof but you know it's it's insurmountable in terms of their scale how integrated it is into everything the pricing power they've got so 
I think Microsoft is a, is really a fantastic business and um, and it's got all the kind of characteristics in terms of growth, free cash flow, returns, good management that we'd look for in a company. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, uh, that answer ties well with the idea of a growth mindset because, you know, Microsoft, for all their big, big successes, and there's been huge ones, they've also had some notable failures and uh, yeah. here they are. Going, going again, and you know, trying new things, and um, is succeeding with a lot of them. So yeah, love, love that answer. Um, the final question that we always like to uh, end these interviews uh, with Alex: If you think back uh, to you know your younger self when you were just starting out as an investor, uh, what advice would you give your younger self? It's a good question. So I think. Um aside from saying have a growth mindset invest in Microsoft yeah <laughs> aside from saying that I think it's really just you know again I guess it's intertwined with the earlier question the book that got me invested interested in investing was Peter Lynch you know one up on Wall Street which is a really readable book I knew nothing about investing and I, I read that and it kind of drew me in and really it was just about taking in your surroundings and trying to identify opportunities, you know, in terms of people you speak to and the things you see around you, whether it's, you know, the Apple iPhone or everyone using a certain media platform. But, you know, really, I just, I guess the best advice for my younger self in terms of investing would just be to, you know, start reading, find what you think is interesting and just, you know, just go for it you know not you can have dummy portfolios and you don't need to put actual money down but there's no barrier to being able to invest and start from a young age love that alex great way to to finish the interview and uh you know we really appreciate you coming on and sharing um you know what is a, a really fascinating topic and one we haven't actually covered on the show before so it's great to hear um you know how you're taking these big mega trends and turning them into investment opportunities so thank you very much for your time a reminder that if you would like to find out more about what alex is doing just head to the fidelity website and uh the ticker code for the fund is fdem so alex thank you very much we appreciate you taking the time yeah, thanks for your time EquityMates Investing Podcast is a product of EquityMates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. EquityMates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of EquityMates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.